All right, <coughs> we finished with the treasure. We pass on to the other section of that passage dealing with the pearl. And there are some questions we must ask about the parable itself. I think they're on what is it, yeah. Go down one. Is the pearl salvation? These are, these are issues raised because sometimes you hear it. The pearl, I, I've got the pearl, it's salvation. So, is that what it is? Because you're going you're gonna to come across, I'll give you a, a, a statement by C.H. Spurgeon. He said, the Bible throws a lot of light on the commentaries. I never forgot that, <laughs> and it's true. The Bible is to be the foundation of your checking the commentary. All right? So when we come here, is the pearl salvation? Some will teach in that kind of respect. Go on. Next one down. Is the pearl Christ himself? Because some will teach that. All right? Next one down. Or is the pearl something else? Now, what I've done is this. I've awakened your mind to the fact these are not just little stories. They are truths that were hidden in the mind and heart of God before the world was formed. The immensity of truth we must get from them is the opening out of God's dealings with the world in its history. We've looked at Israel in one verse God has detailed in a remarkable statement what we understand as the history of Israel, isn't it? Found them, and you can go through a lot of scriptures, which I didn't put there, and then he hid it again. And after he hid it again, there's a sequence always. He went and he bought the field after he'd hid it again. Now we come to the pearl. Keep going. Now, when we come to define the pearl and what happens, I'm saying this. The actions of the merchant man in this parable must fit our answer. Is that clear? Because the merchant man in both parables is the prominent person, isn't it? So the action of this merchant man must fit our interpretation of the parable. What were his actions? Who is he? There are two questions we must face to the actual parable. What were this man's actions? And who is he? Keep going. The merchant man's actions. The first thing we realize, he bought the pearl. It was of great value to him because it says he went looking for goodly pearls. He found one pearl of great value. So this pearl that he got was to him personally of great value. Next one. So some will teach. The pearl is salvation. I've left what I've done I've left, I've left all to follow Christ. Therefore, to me, the pearl is my salvation. 
I've, I'm, the, I'm the man, I've done the actions and that's it. Are you clear? We must define our interpretation according to the parable itself. That's why we ask questions. Questions illuminate truth, if you'll realise it. Ask the right questions and the truth will start to come out. That's what happened. Have you ever noticed God? You go through your Bible. When he went to Job, he asked him two full chapters of questions and Job never answered one. Always, when he's in the Garden of Eden, what did God do? He never listened to anything they said. They didn't. He just asked question after question after question. He didn't answer. He just asked question after question after question. He didn't question the serpent, but he questioned Adam and he questioned Eve. He's always asking questions. So when you ask a question, you're seeking for understanding. But I learned a big lesson, which I had to learn. Be careful the question you ask. Because if you are asking out of unbelief, look out. Because Zacharias was doing his lot offering incense in the temple and the angel Gabriel stood by him and he was afraid and Gabriel spoke to him about his daughter, his, sis, his wife Elizabeth was going to have a son. Name, everything. And Zacharias said, how can this be? How can it be? He wasn't saying, I want to understand just what will happen to make it. How can it be? We are old. In other words, we are old, we have prayed and prayed and nothing has happened. How can this be? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You didn't believe what I said. You'll be dumb till the child's born. And Gabriel left. That was a question asked, doubting that it could actually take place because he had, they were old. They had no child. It was impossible. And this is the message. Mary, as a virgin, young virgin, the angel Gabriel went to her and explained she was going to be with child. The name of the, the details are given. She said, how can this be? Not, I can't believe it. I've never known a man. How could it be? She said, how can it be? What is going to happen to make this happen? I believe it, but how will it happen? That is a totally different motive in the question. So I learned from that, be careful about the question you ask. Doubting, you'll never get an answer properly. Believing that what God says he can do, but understanding how it will happen is another thing. If I ask with the motive, I want to understand, I believe what you've said, but I want to understand, you will get an answer that is much more acceptable than if you doubt what God said. I just learned from those kind of things. And I've quoted this back to you, Psalm 49, about no man can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Redemption of the soul is precious, that they should live forever. So to try and purchase even another person by anything you do, even giving your life for them, is of no value for their salvation. Next one over, I think from Micah. Can anyone purchase it? This is amazing statements. Here is a man 
wanting fellowship with God. What are the grounds? He's a Jew. All right. So he asked questions. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? So he knew God. But he said, with what, what will I bring? With what shall I come before him and bow down before him? What am I to do? Give. Then he offers suggestions. Shall I come before him with burnt offering and calves a year old? God has instituted sacrifice. Will I come this way? Is this the way I am to approach God? Next one. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, which is for a trespass offering, and 10,000 rivers of oil? Vast lots like this. Will the Lord be pleased with that? Then, in the King James, there's just a blanket statement. Shall I offer the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, the greatest price anyone could pay? My firstborn son, will I give him? Keep going. This is a blanket statement. He has shown you, O man, what is good. Now, when Jesus was there, you remember, a man came to him, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. He, he answered him that way. Right? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What has he shown you? There's only one good man. He is sinless. He will give his blood for the ransom of your soul. Literally. You'll be purchased. Keep going. And I've led this only by God's mercy are we saved. And I'll put a few scriptures in which you're probably familiar with. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So that blots out any work that you can place as your means of going into God's presence for eternity. It's only because God has had mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He has shown me mercy through his Son. It's only on the grounds of mercy alone can I approach God's presence. And we mostly, we know this and was on Ephesians this morning. By grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Why? There will be no one in heaven will be able to say anything about what they did to get them there. Not a person, including the greatest people used of God. And David would know that because he committed murder and adultery. The only grounds of entry into God's presence is someone has paid the price for my sins. That's my ground. I have nothing to bring. Nothing I can present. All the worth I have before him is the value of the blood I present when I adore him. Christ, the first fruits unto God. Him with joy does God behold. Thus is my acceptance told. Nothing I bring. I look to Christ 
He's done the work and I'm, my acceptance is grounded in what he did for me. It's called mercy. And grace is God's divine enabling where we have no ability. Keep going. I've put in the Good Samaritan here. I don't know whether I've told you this. I expounded the Good Samaritan. I did it in Fiji and the reason I did it was this. In Fiji there's one word, Lodoma. And Lodoma is translated in the scriptures or in preaching as three words, grace, mercy and love. Three words. And that's the word Lodoma. So I thought, how do we communicate the understanding of three things, grace, mercy and love. So, this is the way we approach it. Love, does God love? God is love. Does God hate? And here there's a silence and then they say, yes, no, he doesn't hate. No, he doesn't hate. God hates iniquity. He hates it. So God does have the quality of hate. Love, yes, but God hates. He loves righteousness, but he hates iniquity. Alright? So that's established. There are two attributes, two qualities about God and we focus only on one. We misrepresent the very being of God. He does hate. So, mercy, does God show mercy? He does. What is the opposite of mercy? Your Psalms, when you go through your Psalms, there's three words used against mercy, particularly in the King James. It's wrath, anger and indignation. The expression of feeling. The opposite of mercy is that. Does God express anger? Jesus did when he was on earth. He says he was angry. He drove them out. Does God have wrath? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah are written into the history of our world, yes. They suffered the vengeance of eternal fire for an example to all those who should after live ungodly. Is God indignant? Does he get indignant? He even got indignant with Moses. Because when they got to the edge of the Jordan, there, Moses said, let me go over and see this land. God said, don't you speak to me anymore on this matter. I thought, wow, rebuke, reproof. Why? He said, you did not honour me before the people. You and Aaron did not honour me. He'd given them a command, speak to the rock. Remember, Moses got angry. He hit the rock twice and God says, because you did not honour me before the people, you will not take them in. So God has attributes which we often try to get away from. We don't like them. Because if God's love is so immense and, and great, what is his anger like? Who may stand when once you are angry, is the scripture. Who may stand when once you're angry? Kiss the son lest he be angry is to the kings of the earth and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. So we have these attributes of God's 
seen before us. So I thought, how do we communicate these immense truths? Listen carefully. Jesus told a parable. Remember, a parable is something hidden in the heart of God. It was there before the foundation of the world. A parable is like this. It's in Luke 10. You all know the parable. A certain man, so King James has got a certain man, meaning that's you, that's me, no name. When you see that, that's me. I can put myself there, you can put yourself there, a certain man. He went down. Direction is important with God. Abraham went down into Egypt. That's where his trouble started. A certain man went down. Direction from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of peace. So he is back, is towards the city of peace. He's heading down, and where's he heading? Jericho. And Jericho in your Bible is the city of destruction. His first city, and they were to destroy it utterly. So he's heading down, and his back is towards Jerusalem, the city of peace, God's place. And he's heading for Jericho, the city of destruction. As he goes, your Bible says, he falls among thieves or robbers. And the action of a thief or a robber is to take what's yours. The action Jesus said was, he stripped them, see they stripped him of his clothes. That's the first action, they stripped him of his clothes. Then they beat him. So he's got marks all over him. He's been beaten and he's been badly beaten because he lay there half dead. Meaning this, you're dead or you're alive, you're never half dead. True? But in the world in which we live, there are people walking around and they're half dead. They, they eat, they drink, they sleep, they talk, they do all the things we associate with life, but they are not in fellowship with God. They're cut off because of their sins. So they're half dead. They're dead in trespasses and sins. That's how the Bible expresses it. I was dead in my trespasses and my sins. So here is this man. He's been beaten, stripped, and he's lying there half dead. So who comes down? Jesus said a priest. What's that? That's religion. I don't care which one. Christian, Muslim, Hindu. Don't care which one. It's religion. Judaism. The priest comes down. And by the way, he's going the same way as the man was. Read your Bible. He, the priest, is heading from Jerusalem down to the city of destruction. His religion, religion cannot save us. No matter how many times you go to church, it won't save you. The next one that comes down is a scribe or a lawyer, a man who handles the law, the demands of God on you and me. And the man is half dead, he can't do anything. So what's the use of telling him, you will have no other gods before me. You'll not worship any graven image. You're not to commit adultery. You're not to do this. He's lying there half dead. He can't do it. He's half dead. He can't do anything. The Lord demands it and all the Lord does is kill you because you can't do it. So they passes that way. Then Jesus said, a Samaritan came. He didn't come the same way as the other two. Read your Bible. The Samaritan came. 
he looked on that man and your Bible says he was moved with compassion. So he looked on you, he looked on me in my condition. He got off his donkey. Remember the king always rides on a donkey? He rode into Jerusalem. He got off his donkey. He went to the man and he took with him wine and oil, two things. Wine, naturally, wine is an antiseptic. It will, it will finish off infection. <coughs> oil is soothing, where the pain has been. But this has immense message. Wine, when you take the Lord's table, this is the cup of the new covenant. For remission of sins my blood was shed. And the wine is represented. I won't go into the message of it, but it's there. The oil, we, rec we remember, is the Holy Spirit, the symbol of the Holy Spirit from the olive tree. When he comes to the man, he pours it in. He didn't just drip, drip, drip. Every power that lay in that wine and that oil began to take effect in that man. I tell you, this is a powerful process we are seeing. Then he bound up so that man could no longer see the damage had been done to him. Forget about healing of the memories. The past we have had, the damage the, the devil did to us, Sin was controlling us. It marked us. It left its marks on us. He bound it up. So other people can't see it and you can't see it. It's been covered up. What did the man do? He picked him up and he put him on his own donkey. Read your Bible. What's it mean? You are a son of the king. When he puts him on his own donkey, that's it. Now I used to ask the question, Jesus, why did you use a Samaritan? Because you go to John 4 and Jesus was sitting at the well and the disciples had gone off for food and this woman came to the well with her, her jug of stuff, wanted to get water out of the well. And the man at the well said to her when she was coming towards the well, Woman, give me a drink. And she said, How is it? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Don't you know, Jews don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. And you know, I noticed our two Jews, when I said that, we had two Jews at our home just this last week, one of them laughed. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. Why is he saying that? Because the one sitting at the well was a despised, rejected man the one who came down on that donkey to where this man lay was a despised and rejected man. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. So he, this personage, who did so much for this man, takes him up, puts him on his own donkey and leads the donkey to what is called an inn in your Bible, or you might call it a motel today. All right? But, I came down that pathway from Jerusalem to Jericho on my own two feet. I went my own way. 
when he picked me up, he put me on his donkey, and he led the way. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. There's an immense transaction takes place before our eyes. We read the story and we don't grasp the immensity of the truth. True? So when he takes this personage to the end, he asks the man, he said, here is money. Look after him. And in the King James, and when I come again, I love the King James in some translations, when I come again, We've been talking about Jesus coming again. When I come again, I will repay you whatever it costs you. So what's he saying? There are shepherds, elders, bishops, overseers, pastors who are responsible for caring and sometimes it's costly. If it costs you anything more, I will repay you. What an immense parable. And it's not just a story. It is Christ who's being seen. And interesting, the, Jesus asked the man who wanted to justify himself, who was my neighbour? He said, who was the neighbour to the man who fell among the thieves? The man answered this, the one who showed him mercy. Oh, wow. Is that what it means? God has shown mercy and he has. The cross is a reality. The cross happened. I am under the wrath of God. And while I remain under that wrath, that's what I will face. But there is a mercy seat to which the cherubim look who are concerned with God's holiness. It is sprinkled by the blood of Jesus in heaven. And I can come because I have a great high priest who was both offering and offerer. He offered himself without spot to God. So he entered heaven with his own blood and sprinkled that blood in the presence of God. And every demand upon my soul that may be made is answered in that blood. So God has shown me mercy. The next great truth I learned was this. God has shown us mercy, but we must receive that mercy. It's not one-sided. God has shown mercy. There's no question of that. But God's mercy, God's mercy, must be received by us. Next one down is in Mark 10. <clears throat> we call him, in the, uh, the story Jesus told the parable, blind Bartimaeus. Bar means son of, son of. Timaeus means the unclean. You're looking at me. I'm looking at you. Before you were saved. Before I was saved, I was Bar Timaeus, son of the unclean. I descended from Adam and so did you or you wouldn't be sitting here. Your DNA originally came from the first man and woman that were created. We all have human DNA. And it's just passed down and it's called... We are come from Adam. So, Bartimaeus, son of the unclean, is blind. Means he can't do anything. He's begging. He can't do a thing. I hope God's brought you and I to that place. 
He can't do a thing. He's begging. And he's sitting just outside Jericho. Meaning, city of destruction. He's about reached the end. He's blind. He can't do a thing. He's begging him on the side of the road. And that's him. And you put your Gospels together with the same story. And what happened was this. Crowd was going past and he evidently sensed something is happening. And he asked, who? What is happening? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Meaning, the man who calls himself a prophet from the town of Nazareth, he's going by. Now he's blind, he can't see him. He's heard nothing, but what he cried out at the top of his voice was, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What's he saying? You're God's appointed king over a kingdom that will never end. That's who you are. He could see the rest were blind. He said, and you know what they did? And by the way, you come to Christ and this will happen to you. You'll find it. Your family will say, don't go that way, come this way. And they'll put pressure on you. All kinds of people will put pressure on you not to come to Christ. The crowd said, shut up. Well, that's my translation. <laughs> Be quiet. I think it was pretty strong, all right? The more they did it, the louder he called. Meaning, I know that you only can save me and I'm not going to be put off. There's the, there's the obedience of faith will always be tested. So he cried out and the crowd then said to him, he calls for you. He stopped, Jesus stopped. He calls for you. And the Bible says, he took his coat, his beggar's coat it was, he threw it off. In other words, he's saying, I'm finished with this. I'm leaving all this behind. He threw it off <coughs> and he came to Jesus. Now, nowhere does it say he was led. All your gospel, you put them together. He wasn't led. He came to Jesus. So you must ask the question, how did he come? How do you come? You come on his word. He'd heard the voice say, come. He calls for you. It was personal. The call was come. And so he came on the word. How did you come to Christ? The gospel of God's salvation called you to Christ. Didn't it? Spirit drew you by the truth. And you came to him. When he got to Jesus, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do? Now, can't you see the man's blind? <laughs> what is he doing? Same as he did in the Garden of Eden. He must open up conversation between. There must be fellowship. There must be a bringing together between the two. He says, I want to see. I've lived in darkness. I want to see where I'm going. I want to be able to know the light. And Jesus gave him his sight back. And the interesting thing is, he followed him in the way. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to be crucified. Talk about walking in the steps you are called in. 
Amazing words. Jesus told that parable using it to illustrate we must receive mercy. Mercy has been shown. So the question is, have you received Christ? Because as many as received him, to them gave he the authority and the power to become the sons of God. So there comes this immense understanding that there is a pearl and it's not salvation, it's not Jesus Christ. There is a man who sold all he had. Now let's go on with your text. We're taken from Corinthians. You know, that this is to believers, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, now tell me, how rich was Jesus? Everything was his. Everything. He made visible and invisible. Colossians 1. Angelic world is all his creation. This universe is his creation. Humankind, his creation. Everything is his handiwork. It's all his. The creator owns what he creates. It's all his. The moon is yours, the sun also, for you made it. So everything is his. All belongs to him. He sold all he had. Question is, how poor did he become? The reason he did it, we are told, that we through that poverty, that action of his, should become rich. Rich in what? Well, if you've never tasted riches that God gives, you've got the wrong sort. Riches that God gives is mercy. He was rich in mercy. He's rich in grace. He's rich in love. It's immeasurable. These are riches you can't buy in this world. But if you have them, you are rich beyond measure. He sold all that he had. By the grace of God, we through that poverty of his might be made rich. You are made the righteousness of God in Christ. We heard it this morning. You are made the righteousness of God in Christ. Don't you know the unrighteous will never inherit the kingdom of God? If you haven't been made the righteousness of God in Christ, you have got nothing. But if you have been made the righteousness of God in Christ, you are made acceptable in the eyes of a God who cannot look on sin. You don't know my life. You don't know what it's like. You don't know even now some of the things I think. All that kind of thing. You have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. That is your position. You're immensely rich. Rich beyond compare. Because they're eternal. These riches are eternal. What you'll get here, I'm sorry, you're going to leave it behind. But these riches are what possesses you and has become part of you. So we go on. Next one down, Philippians, I think, yeah. Christ being in very nature God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But what did he do? 
made himself of no reputation. What is reputation? What other people think of you. What did they think of him? You ask the Jews today. My wife will tell you. She's studying Hebrew. We say Yeshua, which is Saviour, salvation. But they say, come on dear, tell me. Yeshu. What's it mean? Come on. May his name be blotted out. Imagine that. We say Yeshua, salvation all through your Old Testament. They say Yeshu. May his name be blotted out. Sounds similar, but it's a totally different message. Is that clear? So when we come to this, we come to the fact he did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. He brought, you see, Lucifer's sin, he lifted up himself in pride. Christ humbled himself to the death of the cross. Your Bible tells you when that man lay on that road, they had stripped him. Do you know when we lost our covering? Back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve could fellowship with God. They were clothed with the glory of God. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none of us have the glory that Adam had in God's presence. We lost the covering. When Christ hung on the cross, he had nothing on. Nothing. They stripped him. He took your place. He took my place. Didn't he? And the marks he bears on him were for what I had done. What you had done. And I remember that song we sang. The marks are on him now in glory. They're still there. The only one in heaven whose body is marked is Christ himself. Because he said to Thomas, remember, Thomas, put your finger in the nail prints of my hand. Put your hand in my side. Be not faithless but believing. And he said, my Lord, my God. Why? Because Yahweh, the name of God, means yud Hey vav Hey in Hebrew. I don't learn Hebrew, but there's a bit of to go here. Let me explain. Hey means behold. yud Hey, behold the hand. Hey, uh, yud is the hand. Vav, hey, behold, vav, the nail. The name of God is, behold the hand, behold the nail. Thomas fell before him and he said, my Lord and my God. He understood the name of God. It's Jesus, Yeshua, salvation. So when you come to this whole area here, we, come, we can't buy our salvation. But someone lost everything he had. He sold all he had to purchase us. Keep going. What did he purchase? This is taken from Acts 20 when um, 
Paul is with the Ephesian elders. He's called them to himself and he won't see them anymore. He's been with them for three and a half years. They've had constant teaching. He calls them to himself and he explains to them what lies ahead for them as a church. But he says, be shepherds of the flock of God. The church is the King James. Which he purchased with his own blood. Tell me, the action of the man at the cross who sells everything, the treasure, he purchased the world so he could get the treasure. But here, the action is described, he purchased the church with his own blood. Go across, your next one down is from um, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were purchased not with perishable things like silver and gold. It was with the precious blood of Christ. So you're sitting here tonight. You have been a sinner, that's your past. Every one of us look back over a past. Some of us can look back and we have heard the gospel and it is registered in our hearts. And God has done a work and he's still doing a work. There's a lot of work still to do. <laughs> but God has begun a work and he will perform it till that day, he will do it. But you've been purchased. You are a purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Notice, Israel will be to the praise of his glory. You are to be to the praise of his glory because what you are now is because of what God has done in you. What I am now is because God is still at work in me. He's still got stuff to do and he will have till I drop dead. But he's very patient. <laughs> he's very patient. Next one down. Who sold all he had? And I put in, though he is rich, again, our sakes he become poor. Next one down, Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That literally means a sweet-smelling sacrifice, the whole burnt offering he became for you and me. He loved us. He's talking to the church. He loved us, the Ephesian church, and gave himself, next one there, the pearl of great value. What is it? You had your Ephesians this morning, Ephesians 1.18. Paul prays. And remember, he's been at this church. He's three years teaching in this church. But now he addresses that same church and he says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know three things. What is the hope to which he's called you? The second thing is this, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The saints are his glorious inheritance. They're his precious possession. He purchased them. So the pearl is not salvation. The pearl is not Christ. The pearl is the church. The action of the man must fit the interpretation of the parable. Am I clear? So when you come to this area here, I think I've done it next. Keep going down. He presented to himself a glorious church. It's the riches of his glorious inheritance. Keep going. 
Christ, and I've, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So here you have this purchasing uh, work because it was of great value to him. He found one of great value and presented to himself. I've done this, the formation of a pearl. How is a pearl formed? Because if the pearl is the church, we must ask the question, how do you form a pearl? Well, there are artificial ways now, right? but there is the original way. And I'll just put it like this. A oyster, a generally large oyster, inside is a living organism. It's living inside this oyster. But a piece of sand, grit, gritty sand, sharp, somehow gets inside this oyster. And it irritates. Remember, this organism inside is living. And this sharp, sharp object that gets inside there irritates, hurts it. So what does it do? It starts to secrete. The thing they call nacre or mother of pearl starts to secrete over this irritating thing that is there and starts to cover this irritating object. And layer upon layer, upon layer, remember it's not a jewel now, it's a pearl. It begins to be covered. In a normal process, they say it takes two to three years to form the pearl. So when you open an oyster and you find a pearl inside, that has taken process and time. Different to the treasure, but a process has gone on to produce this pearl. Now, when I was in Tahiti, keep going, next one. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, I'll just leave it there a minute. When I was in Tahiti uh, teaching, I went to a pearl merchant. I wasn't interested in buying a pearl, but I had questions. And these are my questions. You'll understand them. I said to the man, tell me, what makes a pearl precious to you? So he said instantly, three things. He said this, size, the bigger the pearl, the greater the value. I thought, out of every tongue, tribe and nation, yeah. Then he said, there must be no defect in the pearl. No blemish. I thought, he'll present it to himself a glorious church without spot, wrinkle or any such thing. I thought, yeah. That's right. Then he said, the last one is this, we call it luster. And he said, this is it. I look into that pearl, I want to see my face. I thought, wow. That's his purpose. Christ looks into your life and his object is he wants to see himself, his character, his nature, his fruit, his, all that is the whole purpose of a pearl forming. That's the whole object. And we pass lightly by. There is a process and we can't avoid it. And the process is this. You cannot put glory before suffering. Suffering always comes before glory. The process of the pearl is the process of God's changing you and me. That little bit of grit is an irritant to the living organism 
which is finally going to produce a pearl. My sinful nature is an irritant of the Holy Spirit. He's holy. I have a sinful nature. Paul struggled with this in Romans 7. We all have a sinful nature. We got it from Adam. Christ brought us out of the darkness. He brought us into the light. That's true. But we do have a sinful nature. You carry with you things of your past. You've been led on pathways. Your mind is affected. There's many things you carry with you when you come to Christ. I've had to have a brainwash and there's still more to go out of there because I've been through the whole education system and it implants in you thinkings and it's hard to get rid of all those things. I'm glad the Bible renews the mind. That's its work. It's called the renewing of the mind. So God has a work to do on each of us. He has a work to do on the whole church because he is forming a pearl. And when he looks in there, he wants to see himself. So when Christ looks in you and me, he wants to see himself. And he's got a big work. <laughs> he has a big work. But it's done by grace, not by your efforts. Let's go down. I put these in. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of our present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So Paul knew there was a process. He knew the sufferings. Of pre We're not talking about the great tribulation. We're talking about tribulation. <laughs> we are appointed to tribulation. We're appointed to trials. It's part of God's process of change. And when we begin to see ourselves, we look into the mirror of God's word. What do I see? I see a Christ and I'm not like him. You know the labour that was in the tabernacle, what it was made from? It's bronze. It, but it's made from the mirrors of the women. Polished, so you can see. So I go to the labour. I look in. I see myself. And I do not like what I see. I am dirty. It reflects on who I am. So God's word is like a two-edged sword, pierces right inside, it discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Right inside, your thoughts. The Bible says, there's a hymn that says, every thought of holiness is his alone. Suddenly you will have a thought and it's holiness and you didn't think it, it came to you. But our very thoughts, God has got to deal with. Out of, the, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Murders, adultery, and he gives a great long list. So God is in the process of dealing with our sinful nature till we say, I am a wretched man. Who can deliver me from this body of death? In me there dwells no good thing. To will is present with me. How to perform it? I don't have the ability. And you're cast upon God to do the work. To understand what he did at the cross. He condemned sin in the flesh. 
When Christ died, you died. I died. That by faith has to be lived out. Listen carefully. I used to, we often quote Galatians 2.20. We have a song that goes with it. I've been crucified with Christ. But we don't read the verse before. What it says in, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. It's not I, but Christ lives in me. But the verse before he says, I, through the law, the operation of the law itself, I am dead. Have you got the Bible open in Galatians 2? Could you read verse 19? Have you heard the words? I, through the law, its operation, have become dead to the law so I might live to God. Meaning this, if you're still connected to the law, you can't live for God. The message of the cross is its death. Not just Christ's death, but when Christ died, you died with him. You were in Christ. And that death separated you from your sin, it separated you from Adam, and it separated you from the law. And it had to happen because you can now be married to another legally if you're a Jew. You see, a covenant is permanent. And there's only one thing will end the covenant, and that's death. And the Jews are in covenant relationship with God from Mount Sinai. That's why they're circumcised. They are in a legal contract with God under a covenant. So Paul says, my brothers, he's talking to Jews, my brothers, you who know the law, won't you hear the law? So he says, the law has dominion over a person only as long as they live. The law can do nothing to you once you're dead. Your law here, man's law, can't do anything to you when you're dead. You're dead. Can't do anything. So Paul is arguing. Death ends a covenant. That's what finishes it. So what about the Jews? They're under law to God. They're in covenant relationships with God. How can they be under a new covenant? Because Jesus instituted a new covenant. If the first covenant's still standing and they come into a new covenant, what about the old covenant? Because the principle is death, only death, ends a covenant. So Paul is explaining to them, you, my brothers, are dead to the law by the body of Christ so you can be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, so you can bring forth fruit to God. Couldn't be clearer, but we struggle with it. It's the history of the church. What is a believer's relationship to the law, particularly of Moses or the law itself? The whole church in its whole history has struggled with that. Right from the beginning in Acts 15, where it nearly split the whole early church apart, and it took a conference between apostles and elders and those who had raised the issue to finally settle this whole argument. 
the Gentiles are not required to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. So it's a real issue. How are you saved? It's not by works of righteousness you have done. It's by his grace through faith in what Christ did. So we come to our understanding there are present sufferings and those sufferings are caused by our sinful nature. Let me just illustrate it. I'm not sure what scriptures I'll go there but I'll just say this. When you're reading your Bible in Ephesians 4 and verse 30 it says to believers do not grieve the Holy Spirit of promise whereby you were sealed till the day of redemption meaning the day that lies ahead when we will be glorified. Don't grieve. What's grief? Grief is pain. It's a deep-seated pain we experience when we lose a loved one because there has been such a close attachment and then suddenly we don't, won't see this person again and so grief is what we generally associate with the loss of a loved one. A pain, a deep-seated pain inside. So the Bible says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So he's a person, he has feelings, and those feelings are a deep-seated pain. When does he feel them? Well, surrounding that verse are the things that cause the pain. What are the things that cause his pain? It says, don't be angry with a brother. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. So there's a, a fellowship to be maintained. When it's not, there is pain in the Holy Spirit. He feels pain. When we don't speak the truth, there's pain in the Holy Spirit. And it's listed a whole lot of things there that cause pain to the Holy Spirit. So what does God allow? Well, God has ways and means of changing us and some of them are not nice. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. It hurts. Nevertheless, afterward, it produces the fruit of righteousness in those who are exercised by it. So chastening is part of God's dealings with us so that we do not continue on in the things we are doing which grieve him. So he is in the process of making me understand I can do things and none of us are exempt, myself included, that when we say something we needn't have said it like that. And I'm a teacher, alright? <laughs> and God has had to deal with me a lot in this. In Colossians 4, 6 it says, let your speech be always with grace. Seasoned with salt, that is it gives it flavour, so you may know how to answer. Now I'm a teacher and I like to know what to answer. It doesn't say that. It says how. How I do it can be with grace or not. And the consequence of how I do it will either 
I will have the blessing of the Holy Spirit or I will grieve him. Teachers, as a teacher, we are terribly responsible. And I realize that. We will give a greater accountability. So when it comes to areas like this, I guess the mouth is the greatest source of revealing who we are inside, particularly when we live in a family, because they know you best. <laughs> At home they know you. True? You'd have to ask my children, ask my wife. And, they, they, and the same with any of your family. They know you for who you are. There's no cover-up generally. That's you. And with all our blemishes, with all our bits of difficulty to get on with, we rub one another the wrong way often, say things that hurt, all this kind of thing. There is a demand on us to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. So the tongue is a little member, but it can set on fire a whole countryside. We're in drought. One match, one lightning strike, and we will have conflagration at home. One little word from my tongue here that God does not want me to say, and I say it, will start a fire, has the capacity to start a fire. Let your speech be always with grace. Set a watch over my mouth. Isn't it true? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of promise. So God allows things in our life. We suffer, and often we suffer wrongfully. And we didn't deserve the things done to us but I had to learn how I react to those things will determine the closeness of my walk with God. Things can be done to you and they're totally wrong. How are you going to react? And I guess we've all have to learn it. May God cause you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It is the answer. Amen? All right, so we've done the pearl. I haven't covered much on the suffering, but it's now time. I'll hand back. Where are we? Yeah, questions. Got a question? All right, we've got 15 minutes. No questions. No, not you, Sam. I knew you were going to be the first one up. I was making my way towards you. You'd put an application in. Um, the question that I have is in reference to the return of the Lord. Now, amongst us as believers, often we do have different thoughts about it. We're all expecting him to come back, but some of us see it from the eye of every eye shall see him. Some of us will see it as at the rapture that he will come. The word rapture doesn't exist in the English Bible, but exists in the Greek expression, arpazo. Now, would you please help us to understand um, the difference between the two? All right, we will cover this as we go through, and particularly from your sheet. But take your Bible, turn to John 14 first. <coughs> That's a passage you'll be familiar with, most of you anyway. John 14. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 4. 
John 14, verse 1 to verse 4. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Or you trust in God. Trust also in me. So here he is separating the Father, Son. You trust in God, trust also in me. What trust have we got to have in him? He gives us what kind of trust we have. And this is the trust. In my Father's house are many rooms, or many mansions you may have. If it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, there is an immense, many mansions there. I am going there to prepare a place for you. So we understand that's why he's gone. He is preparing a place and he's talking to his own and he's preparing it for you. Alright, then he says this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, and some of you are very, I've got mine in mind, come back. If you've got a King James, I will come again. So he is saying, if this is what I'm going to do, I am going to come again. And what he does when he comes again, he tells us, I'm going to receive you to myself. That's his action when he comes again. We understand when we read this, we can just put 1 Thessalonians 4 next to it, an event lies ahead. There are those who are living, there are those who are died and he comes and, and this takes place and he's going to take us to be with himself. The exhortation is comfort one another with these words. So there is an immensity of comfort when he says, I will come again to the church because the whole object is in view. When I do, I'll receive you to myself so where I am, there you may be also. So where I am, and he's he's gone, he's coming from there back, receive you to myself so where I am, there, you may be also. So there's going to be some transaction takes place that we're no longer here, we're there. When you come to Acts chapter 1, turn to Acts chapter 1, We're going to read from verse 6. Again, it's the disciples. Acts 1, verse 6. <coughs> so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So there is an object in view. They say, at this time, is this when you're going to do it? So there's no negative approach from Jesus saying it won't happen. Kingdom's already here. Will you at this time restore again? Meaning they had it in the past. Are you going to restore to us again the kingdom? Now Jesus said this. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons or the times or the dates. The Father has set by his own authority. Now, I don't know how many in the church have tried to set dates. He said, it's not for you to know 
these times or dates the Father has put. You cannot put a date on it. What he does say is this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Tell me, has that taken place? It has. By the Jews or by the church? And the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. We're watching a lot of Jews come into the church today. So, this has taken place. (coughs) Then it says this, After he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So he's gone. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So tell me, is he coming back to the Mount of Olives? Because that's where they are. Zechariah tells you, his feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. So the place, the reason for coming is for his people. You have two comings set before you very clearly and I've touched no other areas. I'm just pointing out there are two comings and they're different. Are we clear? There is much more I could... Some of it we will cover because I must set out Revelation before you and I think it will become very clear. I do, will not mention the word rapture. I generally don't. I will just teach you what is there. You will have to impose the word rapture if you like, but I will teach you just what's there. Huh? Yes, it's, I think it's used 12 times and it's um, Philip was snatched away from the eunuch and Paul was grabbed and seized It's an action that is instantaneous that happens suddenly and will just happen without any warning. Have at this time is is the church going to go through the great tribulation and will be snatched out at the second advent of Jesus Christ or prior? That's the problem that we all have. I'm of the persuasion and I'm convinced. I cannot prove the time of the rapture but I'm standing on his promise and that settles it for me. When we go through Revelation, I think we will cover that and then you can draw your conclusions. You can disagree or you can agree. That's up to you. No, no, no. (laughs) I am settled and I'm happy. We have to accommodate to those who are of a different opinion, particularly when we're dealing with things which have not yet happened. Charity is needed, I recognise. This yeah. 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 I am always touched by this scripture. Godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. It's about contention, Paul is speaking to Timothy, about contention of words and genealogies, all kinds of things. He says, godly edifying which is in faith. What's it mean? To mean it means expository preaching. Taking the text as it is and opening it out. That is the only basis by which faith 
is built in us. So as far as possible, I try to stay in that area. Um, we we just learnt about the treasure and the pearl and established that the treasure is Israel and the pearl is the church, or, uh, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is, uh, is likened to the new and the old covenant. One has an object which looks ordinary to start with and we grind the outside and we have the inside which is worth something. The other is the opposite. So it's something that's worthless and it gets coated and covered. Is there, what's the significance of these two um, polar opposites that we see in the two parables? Uh, where do you find gemstones? In the ground. Down in the ground. He found it. Then he dealt with it but because of its response to his... Let me give you a scripture. In Malachi, third chapter, it says this. Speaking of Israel's departure from the truth and the worshipping of idols and everything, it says, Then at this time, those who feared the Lord spoke often one with another. And a time of declension, a time of departure from truth, a time when it was very difficult to stand for truth in Israel because it's listed for you in Malachi, the priests and what they were doing and all this kind of thing. You come, then those who feared the Lord spoke often one with another. And a book of remembrance was written before God in heaven. Their names are recorded for what they did. They will be mine in the day I come to make up my jewels. So there is a manner in Israel, there has always been a remnant of godly people in the nation of Israel. The Bible tells us there's a remnant. They are these. So when you come to God's dealings with them like that, his capacity is to take them the same as he did to us. He takes them and he fashions them but they've come from the earth because Israel has an earthly calling as a nation. We have a heavenly calling. We don't belong here. We're only passing through. There's a total difference in God's dealings like that because of the difference between a pearl and a, a, a jewel, a treasure. So I take your point and think upon it more, if you get more light and I'm thank, I think we'll talk with one brother here and it's very good, you raise your issues with me or you disagree like that, you make me think and I have to rethink things and I'm not, I am dogmatic but I'm not dogmatic <laughs> meaning I, I see certain things I hold to them but if you see it differently and you explain it to me I'm willing to assess what I'm hearing and benefit by it so think upon what you have gone through. See, I only sow seed. That's all I do really, isn't it? But if I awaken in you with some little text or something and you've suddenly seen something, follow it. That's the way we grow in understanding. Really. Because I am only here just to sow seed, really. So think about what you said and 
think upon it. You've probably got a depth of truth in what you're saying. You haven't plumbed it yet fully.